This is VOA News reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown, an engineer working under Russian occupation of Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, has told VOA that Russian forces have placed artillery and missile installations within and around the property of the plant and have caused explosions near the plant in an apparent attempt to discredit the Ukrainian army. Negotiations have been underway for inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency to gain access to the site to determine whether there is a risk of a catastrophic accident. The IAEA director said this week he hopes to conclude negotiations with the two countries on details of an inspection visit soon. The death toll from a train station attack in Ukraine has risen to 25. We'll get more on the story from the AP's Mike Gracia. The death toll from Wednesday's Russian rocket attack on a train station in Ukraine is up to 25, including an 11-year-old boy found under the rubble of a house and a 6-year-old killed in a car fire near the station. The deputy head of the Ukrainian presidential office provided the updated casualty figures that includes 31 people injured. Prior to the attack, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had warned that Russian provocations and brutal strikes were possible as Ukraine marked both its independent from the Soviet Union in 1991 and six months since the Russian invasion. In his nightly address Wednesday, Zelensky said the Russian occupiers will bear responsibility for everything they have done. Elsewhere in the eastern region of Donetsk Wednesday, three people were killed and one more was wounded. I'm Mike Gracia. And for details on much more news, we invite you to join us at our website. That is voanews.com. Also, on the VOA mobile app by remote, this is VOA News. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered the Russian military to increase the size of the country's armed forces by 137,000 amid Moscow's military action in Ukraine. AP correspondent Zerya Shakli has more on the story. Putin's decree signed didn't explain whether the military will beef up its ranks by drafting a bigger number of conscripts, increasing the number of volunteer soldiers, or using a combination of both. The Kremlin has said that only volunteer contract soldiers take part in what it calls the special military operation in Ukraine, rejecting claims that it's pondering a broad mobilization. I'm Zaria Shakli. At least three Iranian-affiliated militants were killed in multiple U.S. strikes in northeast Syria over the past 24 hours, according to the Pentagon. The Pentagon Press Secretary, Air Force General Pat Ryder, told reporters Thursday the first U.S. strike was in response to Wednesday's rocket attacks against two U.S. mission support sites in which three U.S. service members suffered minor injuries. The U.S. strike killed two to three militants, according to an initial assessment. On Tuesday, U.S. carried out, the U.S. that is, carried out airstrikes in eastern Syria that it said targeted an ammunition depot and other facilities used by groups linked to the Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. Iran denied Wednesday any links to the sites. Iranian forces have been in Syria supporting President Bashir al-Assad's forces during Syria's civil war. The United States has about 900 troops in Syria, working with Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces to combat the Islamic State group. A federal judge directed the U.S. Justice Department late Thursday to unseal its redacted version of an affidavit it used to obtain a search warrant for former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort 
The Justice Department had opposed the affidavit being released in its entirety because it might compromise their investigation. During the search, FBI agents removed 11 sets of classified documents labeled confidential, secret, or top secret, according to a property receipt given to Trump's lawyers. The judge gave the Justice Department until noon Friday to submit a version of the affidavit containing the redactions it proposed earlier on Thursday. Just how much of the document will be unsealed and what details about the investigation it will reveal remains to be seen. For more news, as always, please join us at our website, voanews.com. Also, on the VOA mobile app, I'm Michael Brown reporting by remote VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, August 26, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Different interpretations of preliminary election results in Angola. UNITA, they showed different preliminary results of um, all the reports that they count from the polling stations. Eswatini pro-democracy groups want more SADC involvement in promoting meaningful political dialogue in the kingdom. Two U.S. sanctioned Liberian officials distanced themselves from corruption allegations. Catholic nuns abducted in Nigeria are freed. African health ministers approve plan for quality health care. We are making a plea that the situation that African countries have experienced with COVID-19 vaccines should not be repeated. And we'll speak with a researcher about how climate change is leading to a proliferation of new pests in West Africa. Those stories plus something Mali's sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Angola's Electoral Commission has been releasing early results from Wednesday's parliamentary and presidential elections. The latest results show the ruling popular movement for the liberation of Angola, MPLA, led by President Joao Lorenzo with 51.7% of 97% of ballots counted. Main Opposition National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA, led by Adalberto Costa Jr., was second with 44.5% of the votes counted. Myra Fernandez of VOA's Portuguese service is in Luanda covering the vote. She tells me that UNITA called a news conference late Thursday and said that its own count shows the results are much closer than those of the Elections Commission. In fact, the parties, as the results might favor them after ballots have been counted from the Luanda capital city region, where UNITA is said to have wide support. UNITA, they reacted to this preliminary results. They held a press conference. They showed different results, their preliminary results of um, all the reports that they count from the polling stations. They have 46.89% of the votes in MPLA has 47.99% of the votes. This is still a um, victory for MPLA, but uh, the distance is way shorter than what um, the National Electoral Commission has been releasing. Anita says that um, these preliminary results might change on their favor because Luanda's votes 
are not totally count. And Luanda is the biggest polling in the country, and there's still a percentage about 14% of the votes are not counted in Luanda, and that can change things for UNITA. They also call on people not to react, not to uh, either celebrate or go to the streets and um, react violently uh, because of this. But this is how they are looking at this data. So, Myra, how did UNITA obtain its figures? They have access to the reports that are produced by each polling station. Every party has a representative there during the count, and that's their source. Myra, thank you for all the coverage. We appreciate it. You are welcome. Thank you. That's Myra Fernandez of U.S. Portuguese Service in Luanda covering Wednesday's elections. In Eswatini, the leader of the Multi-Stakeholders Forum says the group welcomes any mediation effort by the Southern African Development Community, SADC, to resolve the ongoing political crisis in the kingdom. Following the August 17th SADC summit in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the regional organization mandated South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who is chair of the SADC Troika, to convene an extraordinary summit of the Troika to find a peaceful and lasting solution to Eswatini's security challenges. There are also reports that President Ramaphosa might be sending a fact-finding mission to Eswatini consisting of a panel of elders. But the Eswatini government says the DRC's SADC summit did not authorize an elders' mission. Tulani Maseko is the chairperson of the Multi-Stakeholders Forum of Iswatini. He tells me that King Mtswati III is simply buying time by continuing to undermine, delay, and frustrate demands for a meaningful dialogue. Since November last year, when President Ramaphosa, as chairperson of the SADC organ on politics, defense, and security, came to the country and agreed with the king that there would be in future a national process of dialogue. There's been no movement, except we now know that uh, the organ produced uh, what they called a draft framework for Eswatini national dialogue process. What has happened uh, is just that uh, the king has refused to attend at least two meetings, extraordinary summits of the organ Troika, until he went to the SADAC meeting. That was held in the TRC, and we have been informed informally through the statement of the SADAC meeting that uh, the SADAC agreed that uh, a panel of uh, elders be allowed to seek a process of intervention in Swaziland, while at the same time, the chairperson of the organ, Troika, also make means to engage with the king. Would you welcome the fact-finding mission of the delegation of elders? We have no control on how that intends to intervene in the Swaziland process. Uh, so we will welcome the coming of the panel of elders, even though we think that it is just a, a repetition and a duplication of what has happened last year. Because we did have a fact-finding mission from SADAC, which we want to believe produced a comprehensive report which they presented to the organ Tokyo and SADAC itself. But the fundamental crisis remains as it was between August and November last year when SADAC uh, came to the country. It seems to me, based on what I've seen, that the Eswatini government has some reservation about President Ramaphosa's suggestion 
of sending a delegation of elders. What do you know? What we know is that uh, whatever they do is intended to ensure that a process of an inclusive national dialogue takes off from the ground. So what we know is that the king is opposed, is unhappy with that proposition because he wants to have a process that he himself can manage and control and manipulate. So if the process is all-inclusive, it must be agreed upon by all the players, and which is what the king is fundamentally opposed to. So we're not surprised that uh, when Sadak says that sending a first-party mission to the response from government is that there's nothing like that, because we know that they want to facilitate and undermine whatever effort that Sadak is initiating to broker peace in the country through an inclusive political process which is facilitated and underwritten by Sadak. The king is opposed to a process that will force him to speak to the leaders of the pro-democracy movement as equal partners because he thinks that uh, people must all listen to him. Thank you so much again for the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. Tulani Maseko is the chairperson of the Multi-Stakeholders Forum of Eswatini, formerly Swaziland. He was speaking with us from the capital, Mbabane. Health ministers attending the World Health Organization's 72nd Regional Committee for Africa in Lome, Togo, have approved an eight-year strategy aimed at curbing disease and responding quickly to health emergencies. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. More than 400 people participated from 47 countries, including about 30 health ministers who attended the top annual health gathering in person, while others joined online. After a week of discussions about some of Africa's most pressing health issues, countries adopted a new strategy for creating more resilient public health systems for responding to infectious and chronic diseases such as diabetes. The World Health Organization says early diagnosis and care could save the lives of many of the millions who die from the diseases. The plan also commits countries to reach critical targets by 2030 to strengthen their ability to prepare, detect, and respond to health emergencies. The WHO Regional Director for Africa, Machidiso Moeti, says the ministers also have launched a new campaign to curb sickle cell disease. She notes it is one of the most common yet least recognized illnesses in the region. However, like childhood tuberculosis, she says it has been pushed to the sidelines for far too long. As we've seen with COVID-19, the impact of sickle cell disease extends well beyond health posing significant economic and social costs for patients and their families. We can't afford to continue ignoring the threat. So greater investments and stronger collaboration and partnerships need to be prioritized. Childhood TB also doesn't typically receive much attention, even though one in every three TB cases among children globally occurs in our region. She says both require timely diagnosis and treatment, as do other diseases such as monkeypox that go largely ignored until they make headlines elsewhere. Currently, she says 406 cases and seven deaths have been confirmed across 11 African countries. While these are far fewer cases compared to other geographic regions, she says there is a need to increase the response. She notes there is a shortage of monkeypox vaccine, and whatever is available is being used in wealthier countries where the epidemic is raging. She says no monkeypox vaccines or antivirals are available in African countries. We are making a plea that 
the situation that African countries have experienced with COVID-19 vaccines should not be repeated. And we are still hopeful that with the advocacy being carried out and the discussions with, with countries that are helping to produce the vaccines, that we may obtain vaccine supplies for African countries. This is not the case up to today. Moeti says there is better news regarding COVID-19 coverage. She notes vaccination rates are going up among health workers, older people, and those at risk of severe illness, hospitalization, and death. While there is still much to be done, Moeti says she believes it is possible for African countries to catch up with the rest of the world. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butty in Washington. Today is Friday, August 26. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. Two of the three Liberian government officials who were sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department on August 15 have denied corruption allegations levied against them. Minister of State for Presidential Affairs Nathaniel McGill terms the U.S. Treasury Department allegations against him criminal mischaracterization. For Solicitor General Sema Sirenio Cephas, the imposition of sanctions on him was masterminded by the country's justice minister, who Cephas refers to as his rival. As Rita Jolobwe Duo reports from Monrovia, the two officials are pleading for their day in court to prove their innocence. The three men started for corruption by the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control and Minister of State for Presidential Affairs Nathaniel McGill, Solicitor General Serena Cephas, and National Port Authority Managing Director Bill Twawe. President Josh Weir suspended the trio hours after the announcement by U.S. Ambassador to Liberia Michael McCarthy. Days later, Two of the three sanctioned officials in separate letters to President were called for investigation. According to them, they are all wrongly accused. Nathaniel Miguel was cited specifically for bribing business owners and accepting bribes from potential investors, among other corrupt schemes. He says allegations contained in the U.S. Treasury Department report against him were committed by the government of former President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Miguel said the United States Treasury Department report contains several criminal mischaracterizations of my person, character, and name. I humbly welcome Your Excellency pronouncement to set up an investigative committee to pop into these grave allegations to afford me the opportunity to have my day in court as in keeping with the principle of due process. For his part, Serena Cephas, in his communication to President Weir, says the imposition of sanctions against him is as the result of a conspiracy between the U.S. Ambassador and Liberia's Justice Minister Frank Musadin. Cephas says he discovered later January 15 that was secretly written by his boss, Justice Minister Dean, to Ambassador Michael McCarthy. He says the document accuses him Cephas of overlapping function or in his words running a parallel ministry of justice and then cautioned the ambassador not to take the complaint lightly. 
he cited what he called a slanderous and vile campaign secretly against him that contributed to his inclusion on the U.S. Treasury Department sanctions list. Former President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf has not responded to allegations made against her administration by suspended Minister Nathaniel McGill. This is Rita Jrawedu for VOA News in Barovia, Liberia. Nigerian authorities a government have released four abducted Catholic nuns unharmed. The nurses' church says no ransom was paid. Timothy Obiesu reports from Abuja. Imo State Police Commissioner Michael Abatam said Wednesday the four Nigerian nuns were released, quote, unhurt, without saying whether a payment was made to secure their release. In a separate statement, officials of the Congregation of Sisters of Jesus the Savior Convent also confirmed the nuns' release and said no ransom was paid. A spokesperson of the Catholic Society of Nigeria, CSN, Michael Umo, says the sisters are recovering from their time in custody. He spoke to VOA via phone. At the moment, we thank God they've been released and they're going some therapy and care. I think it is after all that before we can begin to discuss with them what they went through. The four women were abducted near the town of Okigwe on Sunday while on their way to a Thanksgiving mass. Armed groups kidnapping for ransom has become rampant in northeast and central Nigeria and has recently increased in the southeast. Days before the nuns were kidnapped, a Catholic priest and a seminarian were also kidnapped in the same region. The hostages are often released after paying ransom, but some have been killed. The chief press secretary of the Imo state government, Oguwike Mwachuku, says authorities are taking measures against the recent spate of kidnapping attacks. All I know is that uh, working in collaboration with security agencies in terms of information, precisely last week, the Inspector General of Police was here to formally launch uh, armored personnel carriers that the governor procured for the you know, police high command. So far, so good. I think we are winning the battle. Since last year, Southeast Nigeria has seen a surge in violent attacks blamed on a separatist group, the indigenous people of Biafra or IPUB. According to local media reports, more than 100 security operatives have been killed there in violent clashes. IPUB denies responsibility for attacks. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Based in Benin, Laura Nyanyinu is a researcher whose work focuses on how climate change is leading to a proliferation of new pests in West Africa. She spoke to Ricky Stryak about her work and the threats that pests pose to farmers in the region. We have a lot of examples of invasive pests in West Africa. For example, the invasion of the armyworld uh, in Africa caused significant damage to crops. Uh, this mop, which was not known to local population because it came from America, has caused significant damage since same some year when it was detected for the first time in Africa. We also have the case of the corner borer, Prostephanus truncatus, native to Central America and Mexico, which caused significant damage. All this is favored by climate change. And I work now on the AMI-1, on the biological control of AMI-1. 
can you tell me what kind of effects of climate change? What specific climate change occurrences? Is it higher rain or less rain or um, higher temperatures uh, that are causing these pests to occur in West Africa? Okay, it is the, the first cause is the temperature, uh, weather also, and this uh, favorite the proliferation of insects because uh, high uh, temperature is uh, imply the the, the the development the quickly development of insects and for the local population this new pest uh, is very uh, damages because um, there are no uh, solution no uh, 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 method to fight this new pest so uh, is the reason why this pest cause an important damage. And what are the impacts? Does this mean crops are being destroyed? The impact is is first for the insecurity, food insecurity, and the second impact is the poverty, because more other farmers don't have means to fight this pest, to buy chemical pesticide and other things. So uh, the the peasant, the farmer, don't have any solution and pest proliferate and and cause damage. In doing this work, what are some of the challenges um, for this research and this work? And, you know, are there support systems in place? Me, my research focused on the development of alternative biological control method to the use of synthetic chemical for the protection of crops taken by aggressors. I'm currently working with colleagues on the formulation of a biopesticide based on microorganisms to fight against the main pest of, for example, the Africa garden eggplants and a leafy vegetable widely consumed in Benin. At the same time, we are also working on the development of a digital toolbox that was Laura Nyanyinu, a researcher whose work focuses on how climate change is leading to a proliferation of new pests in West Africa. She was speaking to Ricky Stryak from Benin. It's time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is something O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport with basketball. NBA Africa, the International Basketball Federation, FIBA, and the Egyptian Basketball Federation on Thursday announced 64 of the top boys and girls from 26 African countries who will participate in the 18th Basketball Without Borders Africa Camp from August 28th to 31st at the Hassan Mustafa Indoor Sports Complex in Cairo, Egypt. The camp will mark the first time the NBA and FIBA's Global Basketball Development and Community Outreach Program will be held in Egypt and the first time on the continent since 2019 in Senegal. Nigerian-American Utah Jazz Center Udoka Azubike shares his thoughts on his participation at this year's Basketball Without Borders. This is going to be my first time actually going to the camp. Actually, like, you know, helping out. So I'm, I'm excited. You know, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to, you know, working with the kids, working with people back home. Uh, I feel like it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. And now to handball news. Tunisia's national junior handball team defeated their Moroccan counterpart 31-18 at the ongoing Africa Men's Junior Handball Championship in the first round of Group A game played on Thursday in Rwanda. 
the national junior team had booked their qualification ticket for the semi-finals of the competition after beating Rwanda and Angola. Tunisia will now meet fellow North African side Algeria at the semi-final on Friday. The tournament, which kicked off at the BK Arena on Saturday, August 20th, will be concluded on August the 27th. In rugby news, South Africa coach Jack Niamba is demanding a big step up from his side and is expecting an epic encounter against Australia on Saturday as both teams strive to bounce back after crushing defeats in the rugby championship. South Africa's Springboks, who are the world champions, are seeking consistency on the road after an erratic form at home against Wales and New Zealand saw them win three tests and lose two. They head to the clash at Adelaide Oval on the back of a 35-23 home defeat to the All Blacks just under two weeks ago, having stunned New Zealand 26-10 in their rugby championship opener. South Africa coach Niamba is clear on his demand from his side. They, they know what goals they need to achieve, and sometimes they achieve that in 35 minutes, sometimes they achieve it in 50 minutes, sometimes they achieve it in, in 20 minutes, you know, but they, there's certain things that they will have to achieve. And the moment they achieve it, and we feel it's, uh, it's the right time tactically, then we, then we will uh, make a substitution. In football news, the Confederation of African Football has postponed the 2023 African Cup of Nations qualifiers, which was scheduled for next month to allow its five World Cup qualifiers to prepare for the Qatar World Cup. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a great weekend. And that's it for this Friday, August 26th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us on behalf of the Daybreak Africa team. I'm James Barty in Washington wishing you will have a great weekend. We'll see you again.